I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. If you're using a church Bible, it's found on page 1013. 2018, we began this intermittent on James, every once in a while, exploring the next section. And it's always amazing to me how in my life or in the life of the church, even though they're so spread out, how timely, how self-contained, how poignant they are to our lives, these sections of Scripture. So let me read for us from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 that we'll consider today. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What is your life? James, in his typical direct probing style, challenges his readers then and readers here today to consider one of life's perennial and recurring questions. What is your life? What are you living for? What matters most to you? Why do I exist? I'm certain that every human being throughout history has asked this question in some form or another because of who we are in God's creation. Each one of us could probably think of a movie or lyrics from a song or a novel or even a work of art that has some riff on the purpose of human existence. One of the most famous examples familiar to those who had to memorize it in high school English is Shakespeare's words in Macbeth, his famous soliloquy. Here's how Macbeth, through Shakespeare, answers the question, what is your life? Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Well, Shakespeare put it so vividly, and I would say even so harshly, this truth is not merely the concept of a talented bard but it is actually addressed repeatedly by the creator of the universe in his word. What is your life? We have hints of this presented throughout the Bible. Take, for example, in Job chapter 7, verse 7. Job Job cries out, Remember that my life is but a breath. Proverbs 27, 1 states, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring, certainly employed by James in our text today. Or how about the psalmist in Psalm 39? You have made my days a handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. You see, in our world of constant change, James is writing these challenging words to point us not to hopelessness, not to despair, but to the gospel's gracious hope. 
And so from these verses, from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, I want us to consider this morning three aspects that answer the question, what is your life? First, we're going to look at the fruit of boasting. What we say, what we do, how we communicate to others what we are trusting in. Secondly, we're going to examine the root of boasting, which is the deeper and the the causal force, the motivating factor into when I enter into boasting, this deeper need that needs to be addressed. And ultimately, there needs to be, in the word of God, gives us a substitute for boasting, which is found only in communion with the triune God. So again, this morning, the fruit of boasting the root of boasting, and the need to substitute boasting with the gospel. So first of all, the fruit of boasting. Why does James ask this question and explore this line of thought at this point in his letter? Well, I think there are two verses that he mentions previously that he comes back to. And James has this pattern where he'll introduce a thought or a notion or a teaching, kind of mention it, and then go on later, and then maybe expound it later in the letter. Much like giving an introduction and then coming back and giving an an illustration in his letter. First of all, look in chapter 3, verse 5. He describes the tongue, and when we looked at that and how convicting that is, he describes the tongue as a very small part of our body, yet it boasts great things. And develop here further how the tongue also boasts. Also in chapter 4, verse 6, he talks of the need not for pride, but for humility. How God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So these verses leading up to chapter 4, verse 13, let's read this again. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. Now some of us, as we have read these verses together and we see where he's going... We might respond with, James, aren't you overreacting just a bit? After all, if we take verse 13 at its face value, what's wrong with trade or commerce or working in business? Living in Philadelphia, we have many business schools around us that train entrepreneurs of all types. Our city is the home of many types of industry and businesses. Is he warning against making a profit and applying ourselves to a trade? Absolutely not. Rather... This entire letter, and now he's applying it specifically to our planning of the future and how we view life, is devoted to challenging Christians in the first century and today in the 21st century with this question, will I live from God's perspective, from his wisdom, or will I do this on my own? You see, this claim made in verse 13 is the fruit of boasting. The speaker or speakers here that he is employing are using their mouths to declare something very boldly. How do we know it's boasting? Well, he says so much in verse 16, if you look there. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See, this declaration and others like it that we could put in other words are produced when we look only Primarily, first of all, into our own interests. It could be gathering stuff. It could be having material possessions. 
that could be striving for the next promotion or for more money. It's really an attempt to live our life, and this is key, to living our lives without God and acknowledging his purpose in our words and our decisions. Really, I think that the point here is not so much James is not finding fault in what is said, but what is not said and not done. If you notice in verse 13, there's no prayer. There's no seeking of God's direction. This declaration, and many times we do this in so many words, they're completely separated from viewing our lives as a living sacrifice to the living God. Look at these words again that are filled with self-assurance and self-determination. We will go. We will spend a year there. We will trade. We will make a profit. These words are so self-directed and so focused that James summarizes it as boasting. It is putting one's own agenda first and asking God to bless it. It reminds me of the well-meaning bumper sticker, and I do mean well-meaning in quotes, because I'm still trying to figure it out, that God is my co-pilot, which infers that God is there in the side seat just telling me what I should do, but my hands are still firmly on the wheel. I'm still driving the ship. And while that may be, again, an over-exaggeration, we often do this in real life. We often boast and make plans, but omit God from the planning. And we often sometimes probably are a little more subtle and refined than this declaration here in James. See, at its heart, what we are doing is separating God from the everydayness of life. And I would think that most of us at some point in our life, maybe even this week, maybe recently, where we had this belief that Sundays were for God, but the rest of the week is for me. I'll go on a Sunday morning, do my time, check the boxes, but the rest of the week is me time. And I'll think about God next Sunday. Do we allow the word as it's proclaimed and prayed here today as we sing these songs of faith to impact my decisions through the rest of my week? Do I allow the words of scriptures that I meditate on and pray through and read throughout the week move me out of myself to look at my calendar through God's eyes and agenda and not merely my own? Will it move me to the point where Paul, we can believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do in your planning, do all to the glory of God. See, boasting, when we think about it spiritually, is thinking we can do something in general, but doing it on our own way. It is seeking my own glory, my own rights, my own agenda, keeping hold of my possessions or whatever else is dictated by my self-focused desires. You see, the fruit of boasting, what James records for us here, is demonstrated in these words and actions and attitudes that are very different than the fruit of the Spirit. In some ways, we need to challenge us as Christians with this today. James is challenging a functional atheism in the church to who he's writing to, as he's writing to Christians. When it comes to our pursuits in this world, and again, you need to see the context here, that James has spent an entire chapter in chapter two 
to say it's not enough to say that we believe in Jesus, to say that we believe in the gospel, but to have our lives every day reflect that as well. That we can't just say, this is what I believe, but live differently. We can't just be a hearer of the word, but we need to be a doer as well. So here's the question, though. If this is the fruit, if this kind of arrogant boast that we can claim in our actions throughout the week, when we live, well, where does this come from? Well, like any fruit, fruit does not magically appear. The apple does not magically appear in the fruit bowl. Oranges do not originate in the produce section of our grocery store. Fruit is produced from the root, from the tree. See, James has already explored this in his letter. Look back to chapter 3, when he uses this agricultural image to say that the things that come out of me are not just random things, random words that aren't really me, they're just, I don't know who that was who said it, and I say it looked like you, it sounded like you, so it was you. James is saying these come from our heart, from the root. Look in chapter 3, verse 12. Do fig trees produce olives? No, it's ridiculous. Does the grapevine produce figs? Neither can the mouth bless God and curse man. In in our context here today in these verses, we cannot have a mouth that boasts and be trusting in God. Which then James turns to the second challenge. Not only does he address the, the fruit of boasting, what we say, but he addresses our hearts, that root of boasting where evil and arrogant boasts originate in our boastful heart. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Consider these two questions in verse 14. How can we be so presumptuous when we think we know and do not know what tomorrow will bring? And what is your life? You see, this is at the heart of boasting. Boasting is making claims that we think we are able to handle, but we can't. I mean, some of us can think back to our childhood and all the boasts and the bravado on the playground. All the, well, you can, well, I can, well, you can, I can. Now, the interesting thing is as we grew up, we still have those, but we're a lot more refined around the, 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 in the office. We make boasts a lot, frequently. These two questions, how can you say this when you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring and what is your life, challenges the thoughts and the motivations of our heart. A heart that is set on its own timeline, its own calendar, its own appointments without considering the implication of the good news of Jesus Christ as we go about our daily business. Just think of your past week. How many of us had things go wrong? Or how many of us had things that went perfectly as we planned them out in our day timer or on our calendar online? Just think of the past week, things that could have happened that were completely out of our control. You went out to start your car, and the car didn't work. It's amazing how many times we automatically assume the car isn't going to work. Actually, the surprise is that my car starts more times than it doesn't. Did that happen? And we're shocked and go, my car didn't start. 
How about an unexpected doctor's visit or diagnosis? The demands of somebody else's urgent deadline, whether fabricated or a friend or coworker who needed biblical counsel when you really didn't have the time or a forgotten assignment or an exam. The list could go on and on and on. We never know what tomorrow will bring. Sometimes that terrifies us. What James is asking us to do, though, is not lead us to fear, but to catch a glimpse that we are here on this earth in the midst of our unexpected days that are going to unfold before us is not to live them for ourselves, for our own agenda, but to see my calendar and my appointments, the unexpected interruptions, through the work of Jesus Christ, moment by moment, and be sensitive to his leading and calling in the midst of our ever-changing and unpredictable tomorrow. See, our boastful and arrogant hearts are exposed when we enter every nativeness of life without the Lord's perspective in mind. Consider this parable from Luke chapter 12 that Jesus tells that and no doubt is in the back of James's mind when he's writing this in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. It's what Luke records for us. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat. Drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? See, we live in an age where this phrase, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, is all around us. But we cannot do anything about the time of when that will end. And when Jesus says fool here, he's not calling him a name. In the Bible, a fool is somebody who does not believe in God. See, the Bible addresses the question, what is your life by calling us to look upward to the one who created this world and the son that he gave to die on our behalf to free us from our boasting? Then when we come to Jesus, only then, can we change from the inside, which then will deal with the fruit of boasting. Once our heart is changed, our words become more and more in line with the gospel. You see, a change of heart moves me from arrogance to dependence, from self-reliance to Christ-reliance, from autonomy to God's sovereignty. See, these verses in James and Luke together Many other scriptures that could be cited make clear that the Bible is not against work or trade or business or being industrious, but it is against when good things such as these and many other good things flow from an arrogant and boasting self-sufficient heart. Consider the next phrase, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
This is how the prophet Hosea puts it in chapter 13. He describes the life of those who follow after other gods, gods that they have fashioned in their own hands in those days. Again, we're a lot more subtle with this, the things that we put confidence in, the things we can see with our eyes and not on the one true God. This is how Hosea describes this kind of idolatry. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, like smoke from a window. Talk about four illustrations that even if we haven't had one of those, we've seen some of those. The mist if you've ever been in the mountains in the morning and there's this, the smoky mountains in particular where there's this mist that's there, the low-hanging fog, and as the day comes on, as the sun comes up, it disappears very quickly. As the mist, or like dew that goes away off the grass, like chaff that is threshed from the wheat, and like smoke, a puff of smoke that is here and gone, that is our life. See, the corrective in the good news is in verse 15, where James says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And this is not just some kind of mantra that we say, some kind of thing that we, if we only say this 10 times or 20 times, we'll be okay. What James is after is this fundamental shaping of the heart with the truth of Jesus Christ. To say, I need to plan, I need to work, I need to engage in business. But as I do that, if God wills, we will do this and we will do that. You see, in verse 13, the business and trade of these words are deliberate, purposeful. We will go, stay, trade, make profit. But it is deliberate and purposefully without God. These words flow from a heart in verse 13 where there is no calling upon the name of the Lord, no seeking guidance, but rather brute presumption and self-reliance. It is seeking the Father's will be done on my terms and not his terms. So this leads to the good news because as we've seen the fruit of boasting that we often do in so many words that comes from the inward root of boasting Third, we consider the gospel's substitute much better, much greater, much higher for arrogant boasting, the transforming power and perspective of Jesus' resurrected life. Consider this concluding statement for us and how challenging it is. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let that one sink in. Because sometimes we want to defend our actions. We want to claim that we don't really know what God wants us to do. We want to blame other people. And yet the reality is, the truth is there, and we often don't want to submit to it. The fact is, we know what God has commanded, but we simply don't want to do what he commands. We cannot claim ignorance, though, before a holy God. So how are we to live life in this world without boasting, knowing that whatever the right thing to do, but I don't do it, is sin, these sins of omission, omitting what I should do? Well, I would say that boasting and self-reliance, as James puts out here, 
has to be seen in light of the rest of his letter and indeed the rest of scripture. Self-reliance and arrogance tend to well up within us and come naturally to us. And, And this is really challenging in our world because playwrights like Shakespeare, movie directors, novelists, poets, artists, musicians can probe the meaning and brevity of life But only the words of scripture give hope as a way forward in our brief and uncertain earthly pilgrimage. Every other Christless religious or secular theory to the question, what is your life, can point out the possibilities and oftentimes be very uh, discouraging, but can never point to a true solution. But I would like to point out some from scripture. Into this world of what is your life and the brevity of life and our proneness to boasting, what can I do? First of all, the Bible says we are to boast, surprisingly, but not in myself, not in yourself, but in the grace of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when we accept and take by faith what Christ has accomplished for us by his death and his resurrection— We turn our eyes from that heart, from that root of boasting, which changes my mouth of boasting, which then looks to grace that must come from outside of myself. It takes my eyes off of my interests, my pursuits, the primacy of my calendar, and my dictating to God what life will be like. And through faith, realize and live like I am a child of God. Knowing that God stands for us through his son, Jesus Christ. We have been now made members of his family. And we are told to go to God with our prayers and petitions and rely on him and not in our own strength. You see, in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the Apostle Paul exhorts us with this phrase, quoting Jeremiah chapter 9 that we read at the beginning of the service. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Are you boasting in the Lord this morning? Paul summarizes this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, Christ himself did not come in arrogance or boasting or pomp and to be served, but he came in humility. When he was questioned about to be crucified and rising again, he was asked to give an answer, and he remained silent. He did not call on his father to deliver him, but said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is the way forward for us and our arrogant boasting. This is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to let our boast be in the work of Christ. Second, as we come to Christ... We are to boast, not in our strength, but in our weakness. Now, this sounds so foreign to us. This sounds so crazy to us today in our contemporary wisdom, in our world today, where we need to put our best foot forward, where we need to look our best. This advice is so important. It turns these words of James 13 on its head. No longer is it about what I will do, I will do, I will do. But what would God have me do? It is because we have been shown great grace. Kindness that is undeserved. 
through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ so that now we can boast in him. We can now bask in his forgiveness. We can now do this not because we have anything to offer God, not our accomplishments, but by his loving favor given to all who ask. If you want to consider this further this week, spend some time in 2 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. It's actually a a really interesting chunk of scripture that talks about boasting a lot. There's a lot of boasting in there. But Paul kind of, again, turns our contemporary expectations on its head. The Apostle Paul there will list all of his accomplishments that he could have cited for God to accept him. That he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He went to the best schools. He got the best training. He had the best religious checklist. So much so, if he were applying for a religious job at that time, he could have shown them his resume and they would have said, perfect candidate, great, got it. And what does he do, though, with that self-made resume? He said, I consider it as garbage. Why? Because he had the ability to see that it's not about his accomplishments and his abilities, but rather it's about the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 is very timely here. He boldly exclaims that it is by grace we have been saved through faith. Not by external works, not by my planning, not by my willpower, not by I will do this and I will do that, so that no one can boast because it were up to me, because I prayed a certain amount, because I did certain things, because I ate the right diet, because I wore the right clothes, it would be about me. The gospel moves me out of myself. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, he continues to unpack this boasting that he could do. And listen to what he says in verse 30. He says, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. That's crazy. Why does he do that? Not in a martyrdom, oh, woe is me, I'm so weak, oh, not that. But rather so that the power of Christ may rest in us. As John says, John the Baptist says in John chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease. Only then can the power of Christ rest in me, which is the opposite of boasting. Now, this, I must admit, this may not sound very encouraging, but if you're feeling spiritually weak right now, you question how God could possibly use you in his kingdom, you're actually in a place where God can use you. See, when we come to the end of ourselves, and when we boast in our weakness, not in our strength, it is when the power of Jesus Christ is known all the more. This is the message that has been proclaimed by Christ's preachers through the centuries. I'll give three examples of this. Paul declared, first of all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he's defending himself, even as an apostle, he has to defend himself, says this. We do not preach ourselves, and as he says elsewhere, as others do for rivalry or for boasting or for self-glory. But we preach Christ Jesus and him crucified. Again, there's that weakness of the cross. Second example, an early preacher of the church, Chrysostom, in the fourth century, commented about our passage. He says this, 
James does not remove the power to do good, but shows that it is not just a matter of one's will. To do good as we ought, we need the grace of God. And third example, on June 3rd, 1860, almost to the day, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way in his sermon, grace puts its hand on the boasting mouth and shuts it once for all. And then it takes its hand off the mouth and that mouth now does not fear to speak to man, though it trembles at the very thought of taking any honor and glory from God. The doctrine of reliant grace humbles man in the very dust. And then he is just in the right place to receive the grace and mercy of God. It is a humbling doctrine. Grace gives the death blow to self-sufficiency. Third and finally, as we come to Christ, as we realize it's by grace, as we boast in our weakness and not in our natural strength, we can this this week be reminded that we are not to boast in this mortal life, in our strength, in our accomplishments, but boast in the one who has conquered our mortal enemies of the devil, sin, and death itself. You see, this boast in James 4.13 and the heart from which it flows that is unchallenged by the gospel is motivated by self-control and self-governing that I can do all these things in life when we really cannot control anything in this world around us. Especially true today as we look around us and see the state of the world. We can sometimes get discouraged. But this is where we rely on God's grace and God's mercy. You see, the highlight of the reminder of our mortality is that we are this mist, this smoke, this chaff, and the brevity of our lives. The longer we live, the closer we come to our own appointed time of death. Speaking personally, the past few years I've attended many funerals for family members, acquaintances. I've heard about friends and co-workers who have entered their eternal rest. During the coffee hour, someone came up to me and said that they had recently attended their 50th high school reunion and how sobering it was. Our life is truly a mist that appears for a short time and then is gone. Rather than despair at, the li- at life and the certainty of death, we are a people who live in the resurrected power of Jesus. Consider this excerpt from John Donne's poem, Death Be Not Proud, in which the arrogance of death boasts death itself will be humiliated. He says this, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor, yes, canst thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. So what is your life? What are you trusting in? Have you put your trust and your confidence in this gracious Lord Jesus Christ who has given his life to redeem us from a boastful tongue, a boastful heart, so that we can now live differently and rather than boast in ourself, proclaim his glory to all people everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. 
who has redeemed us from our pride, from our boasting and our arrogance. And even though we fall back in occasionally, you have delivered us from the sting of death, from the curse of sin. As we're reminded, our life on earth is as a mist that will soon disappear. Give us the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to serve you now and all the days that you give us until that glorious day when we will boast of your power and your strength forever. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.